Matthew chapter 10 and verses 1 and 2, Jesus calls his apostles. He empowers them and will equip them. And in verse 2, it says, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas, Ishkiriot, translated Iscariot, the man from Kerioth, who also betrayed him. And then in John chapter 1, verse 43, it says, the following day Jesus wanted to go to the Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to, of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. In our earlier study we discovered that Peter was first, both in failure and in faith, and Andrew first in humility, James first in zeal. If we were to characterize these apostles as first in anything, we might think of John as being first in love and Philip first in simplicity and Nathaniel first in transparency. These three attributes, love, simplicity, sincerity, these are going to be important character traits that make it possible to function as a Christian. Remember, we've already asked the question, what is Jesus doing? He's calling his apostles. He's equipping and empowering them. But what you are going to see in Matthew's gospel from chapter 10 all the way to the end of the gospel, Jesus is going to devote much of his life and energy and ministry in the equipping of these men for service. And for what reason? Because there is no future without them. And this becomes the important reason why we minister to each other, equip one another, serve one another, reminding each other that without our children and grandchildren, without our family and friends, there is no future. And so we begin with John. He's very well known. There's much that we know about John. We know that he's the brother of James and he's the son of Zebedee in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. And Salome, that's in Matthew 27, 56, in Mark 15, 40. In the earlier studies, we talked about Zebedee and Salome. I reminded you that his father was a fisherman and his mother was a fisherman's friend. No, that's not what I said, but, but that would be true. Salome, according to some scholars, may have been related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if that's the case, then John would have been a cousin of Jesus. John, along with his brother James, are involved in the fish business in Galilee. He's a disciple of John the Baptist from Luke chapter 1, verse 17 and verse 32. And then again in, in John chapter 1, which we just looked at in verse 35, it says, again, the next day, John the Baptist 
stood with two of his disciples in verse 35. We know from the text that one of those is Andrew. And for all intents and purposes, it looks like the author is the other disciple. And so, John hears the preaching and the testimony of John the Baptist. He turns to Jesus and he follows Jesus. John was a constant companion and witness of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. With his brother James, Jesus gave them nicknames. He called them Bar Boanerges. That's translated the sons of thunder. And many have suggested that there was a reason why Jesus called them the sons of thunder. That these guys were a handful. That sometimes they were a little bit rough. Sometimes a little bit rash. Sometimes a little bit impetuous. Sometimes, if pushed, they could even be described as violent. There are moments when John seems disappointed, even disturbed. When a man uses the name of Jesus to cast out demons, but he has no real connection with either Jesus or the rest of the disciples. And he rebukes him in Mark chapter 9, verse 38. John, along with James, suggested that they call down fire from heaven. In Luke chapter 9, verse 54, they'd been preaching in a Samaritan, in, in a village. And as they had been preaching in the village, their testimony was rejected. And John and James said, should we call down fire from heaven like Elijah and smoke them like a cheap cigar? And Jesus said, you don't understand what you're asking. Jesus said, I I came for life, not for destruction. I've come so that people could have hope and life. We see elements of vengeance and explosion, but also being judgmental. And there were even moments of selfishness where he and his brother asked Jesus if they can sit at his left and right side in his future kingdom. But their journey will take place. A maturation will unfold. This fiery temperament will give way to boldness. And this lack of love will turn into compassion. John is also a part of the inner circle. Five times John speaks of himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In John chapter 13 verse 23. John chapter 19 verse 26. John chapter 20 verse 2. John chapter 21 verse 7. And then again in, in John chapter 20, 21 verse 20. When I was preparing this message, I happened to be earlier this week in um, Oregon, where in Portland and in Eugene and and Medford, um, I worked with the principals who were involved um, providing the investigation and the support with the the FBI, the evidence recovery team and the SWAT team and the, the agents who were working the scene. And it just so happened that this particular Scripture came up in one of my conversations. I noted that John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And one person said, isn't that a little bit arrogant? Isn't that kind of rash? And I said, it might seem that way. Especially if you grow up in a family where someone often refers to themselves as, I'm his favorite or I'm her favorite. I had Billy Graham's grandchildren on my radio program, and he has many grandchildren. And two of them who I had on the program, uh, his granddaughter said, we called him Grandpa Billy. And Grandpa Billy said, he said to me, you're my favorite. She goes, I believed it my whole life until until I discovered that he told that to each and every one of us. (laughs) And I reminded him that it's possible that that could be true. Especially when you're talking about grandchildren. It's possible for each and every one of them to be the most important person in your life. And that to refer to someone as the the disciple whom he loved. Remember in this particular instance it it isn't just simply a warm fuzzy feeling that wells up inside of your stomach. This is proximity and intimacy and relationship. 
We see John prominently in the New Testament. He's always with Jesus. He's part of that inner circle who witnessed Jesus as he marches up the mountain of transfiguration. And in a moment, he's turned into this blinding divine creature where Jesus' divinity is revealed. He's the one who was sent to prepare the upper room at the Last Supper. He's assigned the task of the care and the custody of Jesus' mother when he's on the cross. And he entrusts to John the care and the custody of his own mother. And remember, this is the John who on the day of the resurrection engages in a foot race with Peter and outruns him to the empty tomb. Both Peter and John recognized for their leadership from the very beginning were very, very different in their disposition. And by the way, John records in John chapter 20 verses 2 through 8 that when he ran to the tomb and he peeked inside and he saw the absence of a body, it's recorded that he saw and that he believed John's reoccurring message in his writings is about God's love. But it's never a love that is absent faith in Jesus Christ. John tells us that God's love in Christ saves, transforms, but then it unites all of the believers together. John's life will be a process of growing and balancing love and truth. By the way, John's writings reflect this, and it just so happens this last Wednesday I began a brand new Bible study in the little epistle of 1 John. In his writings, he'll use the Greek term for truth some 25 times in his gospel, 20 more times in the epistle. He wrote, quote, I have no greater joy than to bear than to hear that my children walk in the truth, he'll say in that last little epistle, 3 John chapter, uh, verse 4. The strongest rebuke that he has is reserved for someone who claims to be a believer, who claims to be a person who knows God and loves God. But all the while they walk in the darkness. John describes that person as a liar and not in the truth. The truth is not in him, he'll say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. In his youth and in his zeal for the truth, he sometimes came face to face with a lack of love and a lack of compassion. But guess what? These are lessons that he's going to have to learn. John will also have to learn the delicate balance between ambition and humility. In Mark's gospel, remember, John sees the man ministering in Jesus' name and John basically says to Jesus, make him stop. And Jesus says, don't make him stop. If he's not opposing us, then he, he basically uses that particular incident to say, hey, you're either for us or you're against us. And remember, it's in the context of ambition and the requirement of humility for service. In Mark chapter 10, verse 31, it's in that instance and under that context that Jesus will make the remark that the last will be first and the first will be last. Is it wrong to have ambition? I don't think so. The error isn't in the desire for position because later in the, in the New Testament, Paul will write, if you desire to serve the Lord, if you desire a friendship and a relationship with the Lord, if you desire to serve in the body of Christ, this is a good thing. This isn't a bad thing. The error isn't in the desire for position. The error is desiring and obtaining a position absent qualifications, untempered by humility. The rebuke in the Bible isn't that you want to serve. The rebuke in the Bible is, are you willing to serve? Because that's what God has called you to do. Remember what we've already learned, that God doesn't call necessarily the qualified he qualifies the called and the moment that God extends to you an invitation to know him and love him 
to be forgiven by him and walk with him. He's going to give you the necessary ingredients. So what other things would John need to balance? Not just ambition and humility, but he's also going to need to balance suffering and glory. Like most normal people, John has a thirst for glory and an aversion to suffering. John wants the pedestal. John wants prominence. But John doesn't want to be hurt. How do we know that? His thirst for glory is revealed in Mark chapter 14, verse 50, where he asks for the throne. But is that wrong? No. Again, is it wrong to want to know God and know Christ and serve him and participate in the glory of Jesus' eternal kingdom? The answer is that's not wrong. So what is the problem? The problem is sometimes in order to participate in that glorious kingdom, you have to be willing to identify with Jesus in the here and the now. And that includes suffering. Remember what Jesus will say. If you, he who would live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, will experience suffering. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And so Jesus is going to contrast and compare that participation in this life is going to sometimes include pain, problems, setback, suffering. And so... This is a lesson that John is going to experience completely. Suffering is the price of glory. And suffering is the prelude to glory. And it would appear that John lives for many, many years in Jerusalem. And then according to well-established church traditions and later life, he will make his way along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Ephesus. She will die and John will live to a ripe old age. Some scholars push the date of his death all the way to about 100 AD. And it would appear that he writes his gospel late in life in that place called Ephesus. He also writes the book of Revelation, almost certainly either on the island of Patmos or shortly thereafter, and the epistles that we're studying on Wednesday. And so, John will grow. John will change. Philip is the next person we're going to look at. What do we know about Philip? Well, we're only given a few references. His name means lover of horses, philos, hippos, and uh, he is a Jew with a Gentile's name. I like that. Reminds me of myself. My father, who was from Sicily, came to this country. And he said, my son is born right here in America. He's going to speak English. We're going to give him an American name. We'll call him Gino. <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell him it's really not an American name. You know, sometimes I imagine if I were to make a made-for-TV movie or a major motion picture about who I would cast in the role of Philip. Some of you are old enough to remember Bonanza. And you remember Hoss Cartwright. Remember his name, Hoss, is a derivative of horse. And there's a reason why they called him Hoss. It was because he was big, but he was generous and compassionate. He wasn't as witty as his younger brother, Michael, the one that Michael Landon played. And he wasn't as handsome as his older brother, but he was as nice as the day was long. He was filled with compassion. He was filled with, with, with generosity. Now, we're not given a whole lot of information on him. In this time period, there was a man named Philip, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and it could very well be that his parents named him after Philip the Tetrarch, who was a son of Herod the Great. 
But because he has a Greek name, this has caused some scholars to believe that he had an affinity for Greek people and Greek culture. There seems to be good evidence that he spoke Greek because when the Greek-speaking people wanted to see Jesus, they approached Philip in order to make the introductions. Philip is mentioned in all four complete lists of the 12. In Matthew chapter 10, which we read, Mark chapter 3, verse 18, Luke 6, 14, and again in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. We know he's a native of Bethsaida in John chapter 1, verse 44. This is a city, by the way, which Jesus had some fairly remarkable things to say and not all of them good. Remember what I said to you because they rejected Jesus and they rejected his miracles and they rejected his message. It was a city where he would pronounce judgment. The people, in, for the most part, had rejected the truth about Jesus. And those tragic results would cause an invitation to judgment. And how ironic that some of Jesus' choice servants come from places that invite judgment. Only John gives us a peek into the person we call Philip. There's no real mention other than in the lists in Matthew or Mark or Luke. Only John gives us a peek into his, na his nature or character. John mentions Philip in John chapter 6 verses 5 and 7. In John chapter 12 verse 20 through 23. And again in John chapter 14 verse 8. We always find Philip paired with Andrew. Both lived in Bethsaida. It was Andrew that Philip found his way when problems or difficulties arose. Augustine used to say the church would never have had Paul but for the prayer of Stephen. And we might say that the church would never have had Philip except for the ministry of Andrew and Peter. But what's interesting, again, in verse 45, it's, or in verse 44... Actually, verse 43, it says the following day, Jesus wanted to go to the Galilee and he found Philip. This is interesting to me on so many different levels. The reason is because there seems to be only three ways that a person comes into a right relationship with God and enters into a relationship with God through Christ in the New Testament. Number one is through preaching. John and Andrew hear John the Baptist preach. Number two is a caring or concerned person leads the person to the Lord. Andrew first finds his brother, Peter. So one person hears a preacher. Another person through relationship with someone close is invited or introduced to Jesus. The third is Philip. It's not the hearing of a preacher. It's not relational evangelism. Jesus himself has to show up. Jesus has to show up and knock on the door and extend the invitation. And just for fun, how many of you came to Christ because you heard a preacher preach? Go ahead and raise your hand. You heard a preacher preach, you received Christ as your Savior. How many of you came to Christ because someone loved you, cared about you, and relationally began to talk to you about the gospel and about Jesus and about his life, his death and his resurrection, and, and you prayed with this person to receive Christ? Raise your hand. Look around you. Okay. How many of you, it wasn't a preacher and it wasn't the relationship because you're a numbskull and Jesus himself had to show up and give you an ultimatum? Raise your hand. Look around you. Yeah, you know who you are. But isn't that interesting? Those seem to be the three ways. And it's interesting also that this Philip is sometimes confused with Philip the deacon evangelist in the book of Acts, but they're different people. So the Philip that you read about in the book of Acts who runs down the chariot isn't this Philip. It's a, it's a different Philip. In John's gospel, we read the day that, that after Jesus calls Andrew and John, Jesus goes to the Galilee, finds Philip, says, follow me in verse 43. John and Andrew hear John the Baptist preach. Andrew finds Peter. Jesus finds Philip. And Philip finds Nathaniel. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But this 
provides us an important insight. And the important insight is one of the truest signs that you really do have a right relationship with God. One of the truest signs that you've entered into life in Jesus. One of the truest signs that your heart has been changed and you've been transformed by the message of the gospel is this intense desire to tell other people about life and love and hope and forgiveness that's found in Christ. Philip speaks in John's gospel and he says to Nathanael, we found him in verse 45. The seeking was mutual and the joy was mutual in the finding. Sometimes the shepherd has no other choice but to find the sheep. Sometimes the physician has no other choice than to find the patient. Sometimes the Savior is at work seeking the sinner. But whether you're the seeker or whether you're sought, salvation always precedes discipleship. And in John's text, we note the order. There's seeking, there's finding, and then having found the Messiah, Andrew finds Peter, Jesus finds Philip, Philip finds Nathaniel. Isn't that interesting? You know, in the Old Testament, it says, if you seek him, he will be found of you. Jesus said, you shall seek me and find me. When you search for me with all of your heart, seek and you shall find, the Bible says. I'm found of them that sought me not, the Bible says. Seek the Lord while he may be found, the Bible says. Think about it. As sure as day follows night and summer follows winter, so the person who seeks finds. And so if you're wondering, if you're wondering, this becomes part of the point. What is it that you're looking for? What is it that you're seeking? And it's interesting. Philip finds his friend Nathaniel and he says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets write. That's Philip's testimony. We found him. He's found me. Philip's called by Jesus himself. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus finds him, and in Jesus, Philip finds his satisfaction. But it isn't just simply the fact that Jesus has found Philip. Now Philip is going to open God's word and see what God's word has to say by Moses and by the prophets. We live in a world where people are seeking pleasure or wealth or stimulation or satisfaction. They're not looking for the source of every precious thing. No wonder Jesus said, they'll seek me and find me. The, New, the Old Testament writer says, I sought the Lord and he heard me. So Philip the convert becomes Philip the soul winner. And again, this is one of the surest signs that something really powerful has happened. And in this case, Philip finds Nathaniel. By the way, Nathaniel has two names in the Bible. Nathaniel and Bartholomew. Philip is first in simplicity. Why do I say that? I'm going to suggest to you because he's simple and he's approachable. When a lad wants to offer up a gift, he finds Philip. When the Greeks want an introduction to Jesus, they find Philip. I'm going to suggest to you that he is simple, accessible, approachable. Philip seems to be gifted in the area of forming friendships and keeping friendship. This is an incredible quality to be able to have. Charles Kingsley, the English cleric and novelist, was asked, what's the secret of your life? He was asked the question, tell me that I can make my life beautiful also. And his simple reply was, I make friends. Isn't that interesting? The beauty and the simplicity and the loveliness of his life was his ability to form friendships and relationships. 
I'm going to suggest to you that Philip could have said the same thing. I have friends. We love the same Lord. We serve the same Lord. We can live our lives together. And what other things can we conclude about Philip? Based on the passages in John's gospel, he appears very practical in John chapter 6 verse 7. Helpful in John chapter 12 verse 20. Very literal. When, when in, in the gospel, when Jesus is getting ready to die. It's his last few days on earth. And he basically says, I'm going to go to the Father and I'm going to prepare a place to receive you to myself. Remember, and Thomas says, where are you going and how can we get there? And it's at that point that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And it's right after that that Philip says, show us the Father. Show us the Father and it will be sufficient for me. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Philip lives with Jesus. But he fails to grasp the truth that Jesus is the full revelation of God. You'll remember the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes. Jesus presents the problem to Philip in John chapter 6 verse 5. It says Jesus lifted up his eyes to the multitudes. He presents the problem to Philip in John chapter 6 verse 5. It says Jesus lifted up his eyes seeing a great multitude coming towards him. He says to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat, he says. But it also says, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii's worth of bread isn't sufficient for them that every one of them may eat. Remember, Philip is the guy who, who says, okay, Jesus, you asked me a question, let's do the math. He looks around the multitudes and he goes, okay, 6,000 human beings times a loaf of bread and a piece of fish. If I take everyone out to Long John Silver's, let's see, with a denarius, I can buy a loaf of bread, a cup of wine, and a place to stay. Oh, gosh, even if we have 200 denarii, which is almost a year's wage, we wouldn't be able to feed everybody. The math doesn't add up. And by the way, that's Philip. At this particular moment in, in his life and in his ministry, he doesn't bother to figure in Jesus to the equation. If the math doesn't add up, neither does the ministry and neither does the miracle. And sometimes that's exactly what we do. We look at the problem or we look at the circumstance and we look at how difficult the problem is, how difficult the circumstance, how big the trial is, and we go, what are we going to do and how are we going to deal with this? And we don't always factor Jesus into the equation. Can you imagine if Philip had said, you're the creator and the sustainer of the universe. You can do whatever you want or refrain from doing whatever you want. You're the God who fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. There's nothing too hard for you. But that's not what he said. And the next glimpse of his character were given in John chapter 12, verse 20. When the company of Greeks come to worship at the feast and the Gentiles with sincerity desire to see Jesus approach Philip and they say, sir, we would see Jesus. But for some reason, Philip couldn't make up his mind to introduce those seeking souls to Jesus. Philip didn't seek advice when he brought Nathaniel to Christ. So why does he do it now? Why would he hesitate to think that Jesus might Accept a Jew, but reject a Gentile. I think it reveals a little bit of a prejudice and a little bit of a difficulty. Philip's not a mystic. For Philip, seeing is believing. And so when in John chapter 14, he asks the question, show us the Father, and it's sufficient. Do you remember Jesus' words? Jesus basically says, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? 
Somehow Philip missed the fact that Jesus is the revelation of the Father. The invisible God is seen in the visible Jesus. How could Philip not know that the Father and Son are distinct in person and personality, but one in essence, one in power, one in pity, one in compassion, one in wisdom, one in grace, one in mercy, one in forgiveness? The better question is to ask, at what point did Philip really understand? At what point does Philip come to the realization that Jesus is the express image of God, like it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3? That we can only see the Father if we see the Son. How could he be so dull? How could he be so slow? How could he be so thick? And then all of a sudden we realize, how could I be so slow? How could I be so thick? How could I be so dull? How come I couldn't connect the dots? You see, there's something powerful and important and even good about the question where he says, or the request to show us the Father. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Because the moment that Philip asks Jesus, show us the Father, it reveals, it reveals his hunger to see the one who would satisfy every nook, every cranny, every niche, every corner of his life. The Greeks wanted to see Jesus and Thomas excuse me, Philip wants to see God and Jesus says to him, if you've seen me, that's exactly who you've seen. And Bartholomew, we might think of Nathaniel as first in transparency. In verse 47, actually in verse 45, it says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Again, this speaks of the simplicity of Philip where he goes, I'm going to get into a theological argument and I'm going to debate the merits of this case and I'm going to prove to you that everything that the Bible says about Jesus is true. He doesn't do that at all. He just goes, look, come and see for yourself. Nathaniel, we think, is born and, and raised in Cana, according to John chapter 21, verse 2. Cana is the place where Jesus performs the miracle of turning water into wine. He seems to have a good grasp of the Hebrew scriptures in John chapter 1, verse 46. The name Bartholomew means the son of Ptolemai. And the name Nathaniel, which is the name that I prefer derives from the Hebrew meaning God has given. That's the meaning of his name. No clues are given again about his background, character, or personality unless we look here in John's gospel because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are silent. We're given this brief glimpse that I just read to you. Philip finds Nathanael, says to him, we found him of whom Moses the law and the prophets wrote, he asks the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus sees him in verse 47 and says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit or guile. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael's response is overwhelming. Rabbi, you're the son of God. Rabbi, you're the king of Israel. Jesus said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. In that single passage, three character traits emerge. Skepticism in verse 46. Honesty in verse 47. Faithfulness in verse 49. I think all of this is very, very interesting. Because there's a healthy skepticism. We as believers are called to test the spirits, it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, test everything. Hold on to what is good. Maybe like you or like me. This is a characteristic of me. 
You might think you're the pastor and you're the preacher. You shouldn't be a skeptic, but I am. I want to prove everything. I want to know the truth about everything. I want you to show me the source. I want to cite the facts. I want to know the truth. One other mention is made in John's gospel where we find Nathanael numbered with those who returned to the Galilee and he goes fishing with Peter after the resurrection of Jesus. And the fact that Philip appeals to the scripture is really important to me. The reason is he's appealing to the scripture to convince Nathanael. He doesn't appeal to an introduction to Jesus. He doesn't say, Andrew's met him, Peter's met him, and I met him, and I want to introduce you to him. Why does he say, this is what Moses has to say, and this is what the prophets have to say? I'm going to suggest to you, it's because Nathaniel is a Jew who cares about what the Old Testament says. And I think that that's powerful and important. And it lends credence to the idea that Nathaniel cared about the word of God. Notice what Philip doesn't say. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, by the way, does God love you and does he have a wonderful plan for your life? The answer is yes. But there's absolutely no way that you could know that unless you picked up a Bible and you read it for yourself. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God has a plan for you? We would hope that lovers of the Bible are lovers of truth. And I'm going to suggest to you that Nathaniel was a lover of truth. And it would appear that he had a sincere desire to seek God and know God. And we hope that all lovers of the Bible are lovers of truth. How different from the religious leaders who were there. Who were more concerned about religion than they were about truth. Nathaniel's love for the scripture didn't exempt him from the harmful effects of prejudice, however. Remember what it says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's not a biblical thing to say. He doesn't quote the Bible and say, according to Micah, he's going to come from Bethlehem. He doesn't quote the prophets and say, his ministry and reach is going to be in Jerusalem. His objection isn't biblical. His objection is emotional and bigoted. And I've got to say something. He's from Cana. Making fun of Nazareth. That's like people from Commerce City making fun of people from Lyman. Really? You're going to go there? Nathaniel has contempt for the people of Nazareth. And Cana isn't New York or Paris or Rome or, or Alexandria or Athens or Ephesus. Nazareth is rural. It's culture unrefined, population uneducated. It's, by the way, it's a beautiful place. But it's not a place where you go on vacation. It's lowly villages. And so we discover something, that prejudice has no place in the Christian heart. Not simply because it's ugly. Not simply because it's wrong. And by the way, it is ugly. And it is wrong. But let me tell you what I think is the most powerful thing about prejudice. The most sinister thing that it does. The most wicked thing that is consequential of prejudice. Do you know what prejudice does? It cuts people off from the truth. That's what prejudice does. It separates people from the truth. The hometown of Jesus blurred the religious leader's vision of Jesus himself. They saw him as a peasant Galilean and a Nazarene. And so when Nathaniel opens his mouth and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is what's interesting to me. Even though there is a touch of prejudice in his mind, there's something simple and pure and decent inside of his heart. I want you to think about this for just a moment. The prejudice in his mind is going to be overcome by the search the seeking, and the desire for truth in his heart. How do we know that? Because of John's gospel and the text itself. When Philip says, come and see, 
And then Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit or guile. In other words, what you see is what you get. And he says, an Israelite indeed. This means he is a person who truly is a lover of the revelation of God that's given in the scripture. And Nathanael says to him, how do you know me? And Jesus says to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now that might not be all that impressive to any of you. Because you're thinking, what's the meaning of that and why is that important? Well, if like me, you grew up in a place where the, the place is surrounded by a certain kind of tree in the Southern California, in the Mojave Desert, there's a place where, where I grew up where it's filled with Joshua trees. And so if someone said to me, I saw you under the Joshua tree, I would go, so there's nothing here but Joshua trees. Imagine you go to Conifer or Bailey, you head west into the mountains and there's pine everywhere. And they go, I saw you under the pine tree. And you go, whoop-de-doo, there's nothing here but trees. Whoop-de-doo, there's nothing in this place but fig trees. It's not that it was a fig tree, but it was what was going on under that fig tree. And the clue is given to us in the very next verse where he says, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? He's, he says, I saw you. And then in verse 51, the, the clue is given to us. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. In the story of the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Jacob is running for his life and he's running because his brother wants to kill him. And he finds himself in a place called Bethel. He has a rock for a pillow. He goes to sleep. Heaven opens. A ladder is let down from heaven. And Jacob has a supernatural encounter. I'm going to suggest to you that this fig tree, this is the place where Nathaniel read the Jewish scripture. This is the place where he prayed. This is the place where he considered the claims of, of his religion and his belief. It was this place. It was this place where he would go, where he would talk to God and he would cry out to God and he would ask the important questions that everybody wants to know about God. Just like you. It may not be a fig tree. It, it might be your bedroom. It might be your pillow. It might be a place where you go, you drive to, and you ask the question, who am I? Why am I here? What is happening in my life? What is real? What is true? What is important? And Jesus said, do you remember when you were asking all of those questions, those deep questions, those profound questions, those difficult questions? When you were asking all those questions of God, I saw you. That explains his reaction. So what's the solution to a prejudiced mind? Take a good hard look at the facts. Come and see. What's the solution to a prejudiced mind? It's a powerful seeking heart that in spite of the prejudice wants to know the truth. And the Bible teaches that Jesus didn't have need that anyone should testify of man because he knew what was inside of a person's heart and he knows exactly what's in your heart. And again, Jesus says he's without guile, without deceit. That means true to Israel. What a wonderful thing. Can you imagine if that's Jesus' testimony about you? If he said, tell me about this person and Jesus says, they're true in their heart. Without guilt? Without sin, absent prejudice, absent hypocrisy. No, there were still some issues that need to be worked out. But Jesus describes Nathaniel as sincere, without hypocrisy. Do you know why? Because his heart is sincere. And by the way, if your heart is sincere then your faith can be sincere. What do you really believe inside of your heart? Remember what he asked? How do you know me? Omniscience is the answer. That's how I know you. I know you because I see the place where you pray. I see the place where you study. I see the place where you reflect. I see the place where you ask the hard questions. Same is true of you. Jesus sees that place. 
And now all of a sudden we begin to understand. Jesus calls them. He equips them. He empowers them. Why? He's going to devote much of his ministry to these men. Why? Because they're the future. I'm going to devote the vast majority of my ministry to you, to your children, to their children. Why? Because you're the future. Love, simplicity, sincerity. Isn't it remarkable who Jesus calls to himself, equips for himself, empowers for himself because he understands something that the future belongs to those who love the Lord and love him and to embrace his plan and see the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every individual here. Lord, we know that sometimes love isn't easy. Sometimes things seem so complicated. Sometimes we think that deceit and hypocrisy will help us go forward, but we know that that's not true. And so, Lord, we wonder if our life might be different, if our character could change, and if we might be able to care about what you care about, be concerned about what you're concerned about. Lord, we know that sometimes the seeker becomes the sought. Nathaniel had no idea that Jesus was looking for him. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who has no idea. They were clueless that you were looking for them all along change them, forgive them, transform them, and answer the questions that matter most. And so again, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would awaken in our hearts a profound desire to continue to walk with you, to be taught by you, so that we could grow in love, increase in simplicity, and be overwhelmed by sincerity. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.